Thank you for coming here on a dreary September morning. And we have some empty spaces up front here because our youth are at camp out, which I anticipated this morning. But I am very grateful for all of you that chose to come out and worship. Let's bow our heads and pray. Father, we come into your presence this morning. Lord, we recognize our own deficiencies, and without you, Father, we have no hope. We have no purpose. We have no reason to even gather on a morning like this without you. Father, our desire is that through all things this morning, your name would be glorified and worshiped. Lord, I pray that you would give us open hearts to hear from your word. I pray that you'd give us clear minds to understand your word. And Lord, I just pray that uh, we could worship you this morning in spirit and in truth. We invite the Holy Spirit here to uh, show us more of yourself. And Father, we also pray this morning for the congregation at Cornerstone as they gather together this morning. I pray for Brother Daryl Hirschberger as he preaches the message there. I ask you to give him wisdom and grace this morning as well. We thank you in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I also failed to mention my prayer. Kendall is preaching this morning at the youth camp out, and Ken is preaching in Nicaragua. Their family is down there this week, so pray for them in your hearts now as you think about them. So knowing that the youth were going to be gone, my mind was drawn a little bit of a different way. I've, I've, had, a, I've had a message kind of simmering maybe for some time. I like to kind of have a list of things to preach about, and sometimes they sit there and nothing happens with them for a while. And so I debated whether this was the time, and so I decided to go ahead with, with this message, and um, I feel like the Lord maybe directed my thoughts in some slightly different ways than what I had anticipated originally. Uh, what I'm planning to do in the message this morning is look at, I'd like to look at three characters in the scriptures and, and think about their lives in light of many of us here being at least mid-age, mid-life to older. And if you're over 30, you count in this, I would say. But think about, well, I'll just tell you, you maybe saw in the bulletin this morning, our anniversary is this week. We've been married 20 years. And when I say that out loud, it, it's, it's amazing to think that we've been married 20 years because we're young. And, uh, but it went very fast. So, but I think back, and we have a lot of history in our marriage, but I think in how many years of my life are gone already. I think about the things I've done as a vocation. I think about where my journey with the Lord has been for the last 20 years. And I'm looking forward to the future. And it's interesting that even in the Bible, there are men and women who had a strong zeal for the Lord. And they had a heart set for God. But sometimes when they got in their later years, they made some bad decisions. Or maybe it was the condition of their life at that moment that set them up for, for making some decisions that weren't that great. And so my challenge to, to you this morning is to gain a vision for the last half of your life. I know often when we're young and early 20s, maybe late teens, you know, life just looks, it's just way out, it's spread out before us and the possibilities are endless and and we think of all the things we want to do and have all these goals and dreams. But, you know, if you've hit midlife, or even if some of you here have retired, maybe you, after you retired you felt like, well, I don't really know what God would have for me now. Is there much to do except live out the rest of my days? Turn to Second Chronicles chapter 14 for our first character. Second Chronicles chapter 14. The first character I'd like to look at this morning is King Asa, who was king of Judah. If you, uh, I'm going to be taking this story out of Second Chronicles, but there is a parallel account in Kings as well, Second Kings, and King Asa would have been the great grandson of of Solomon, which made him a grandson of Rehoboam, and then he was the son of Abijah. So he's number of generations removed from David and Solomon. And so I'd like for you to, uh, I'd like to just get a glimpse of his, some of his, his life, his decisions, and 
and, and go from there. So I'm going to start reading in 2 Chronicles chapter 14, verses 1 through 12. It says, So Abijah slept with his fathers, and they buried him in the city of David. And Asa, his son, reigned in his stead. In his days, the land was quiet ten years. So the first ten years of his reign, no wars, very peaceful. And Asa did that which was good and right in the eyes of the Lord his God, for he took away the altars of the strange gods and the high places and break down the images and cut down the groves and commanded Judah to seek the Lord God of their fathers and to do the law and the commandment. Also he took away out of all the cities of Judah the high places and the images and the kingdom was quiet before him. And he built fenced cities in Judah for the land had rest and he had no war in those years because the Lord had given him rest. Therefore he said unto Judah, let us build these cities and make about them walls and towers, gates and bars while the land is yet before us. Because we have sought the Lord our God, we have sought him, and he hath given us rest on every side. So they built and prospered. And Asa had an army of men that bear targets and spears. Out of Judah, 300,000, and out of Benjamin, that bear shields and drew bows, 200 and fourscore thousand. All these were mighty men of valor. And there came out against them Zerah, the Ethiopian, with a host of a thousand thousand. Now, I looked at other translations as well, and I believe this is truly a million-man army, all right? So you imagine a million-man army coming against Asa. And 300 chariots, and came unto Maresha. And then Asa went out against him, and they set the battle in array in the valley of Zephatha at Maresha. And Asa cried unto the Lord his God, and said, Lord, it is nothing with thee to help whether with many or with them that have no power. Help us, O Lord our God, for we rest on thee, and in thy name we go against this multitude. O Lord, thou art our God. Let no man prevail against thee. So the Lord smote the Ethiopians before Asa and before Judah, and the Ethiopians fled. I'm going to stop at this point in the story. It's an amazing story. But anchored in this, um, this incredible victory is the position that Asa took as king full dependence on the Lord. He said, Lord, whether it would be many or whether it would be few, this is nothing to you, but we trust and we, we ask you for help. God shows up. There's an amazing victory. So Asa begins his kingdom trusting the Lord, takes on this million-man army with the Lord's help, and he ultimately is successful in defeating them. Now go over to the next chapter, chapter 15. Things are still looking good in the kingdom. Verses 1 and 2 of chapter 15 says, and the Spirit of God came upon Azariah, the son of Oded. And he went out to meet Asa and said unto him, Hear ye me, Asa, and all Judah and Benjamin. The Lord is with you while ye be with him. And if ye seek him, he will be found of you. But if ye forsake him, he will forsake you. Very straightforward choice. Asa, as long as you keep seeking the Lord, he'll always be with you. Now let's jump down a couple verses. Go down to verse 8. and Let's look at how... How determined was Asa to have the Lord uh, be primary in his kingdom? Verse 8, And when Asa heard these words and the prophecy of Oded the prophet, he took courage and put away the abominable idols out of all the land of Judah and Benjamin and out of the cities which he had taken from Mount Ephraim and renewed the altar of the Lord that was before the porch of the Lord. And he gathered all Judah and Benjamin and the strangers with them out of Ephraim and Manasseh and out of Simeon for they fell to him out of Israel in abundance. Now catch that. So this is the time of the divided kingdom. You have the northern kingdom of Israel, the southern kingdom of Judah. What was happening in Judah was so dynamic and so powerful that people were actually coming out of Israel to come join. They saw the work of the Lord in Judah, and it says they were even coming out of Israel when they saw what Asa was doing. Very, a lot of excitement about following the Lord. When they saw that God was with Asa, they wanted to join and be part of it. Uh, verse 10, so they gathered themselves together at Jerusalem and in the third month and in the 15th year of the reign of Asa. And they offered unto the Lord the same time of the spoil which they had brought, 700 oxen and 7,000 sheep. And they entered into a covenant to seek the Lord God of their fathers with all their heart and with all their soul, that whosoever would not seek the Lord God of Israel should be put to death, whether small or great, whether man or woman. And they swear unto the Lord with a loud voice and with shouting, and with trumpets, and with cornets. And all Judah rejoiced at the oath, for they had sworn with all their heart, and sought him with their whole desire, and he was found of them, and the Lord gave them rest round about. So 
there is an entire movement in Judah to seek after the Lord. And one more thing he does, I want you to notice in verse 16. And also concerning Maacah, the mother of Asa the king, he removed her from being queen because she had made an idol in a grove. And Asa cut down her idol and stamped it and burnt it at the brook Kidron. Now, it's a little confusing. I looked at several, I looked at the passage in 2 Kings and here because it's not clear if this is his mother or it's his grandmother. And I think the Amplified Bible calls it his great-grandmother. But Maacah is actually the daughter of Absalom. Now, you remember Absalom, uh, David's son, who rebelled. And now you have one of Absalom's descendants, Maacah, either as a grandmother or as a mother here. Still, that, that in a sense, it seems like the rebellion of Absalom carried on into his descendants. And there's idol, there's idol worship brought up. But Asa was vigilant enough. He wasn't afraid of family. And he said, no, we're not doing this. We're not going to have idols here. And he removed her from her position. And then the next verse it says, But the high places were not taken away out of Israel. Nevertheless, the heart of Asa was perfect all his days. Now you could leave the story there and say, Well, it was perfect all his days. And I think in Second Kings, it doesn't say anything more about his life. But it says he was perfect all his days. Um, I think the word perfect also means loyal. So Asa's heart is bent towards God. He wants to be loyal to God, and he's committed. And up to this point, God had given him a lot of years of peace. He gave him a major victory, and then this is where the story stops. Now, jump over to chapter 16. This is toward the end of Asa's life. Remember, I I want us to think about the last half of our lives or the end of our days. How are we going to do well in the last part of our lives. Verse, uh, chapter 16, start at the beginning of verse 1. In the sixth and thirtieth year of the reign of Asa, Baasha, king of Israel, came up against Judah and built Ramah to the intent that he might let none go out or come in to Asa, king of Judah. And I'm going to stop there again because I find the history interesting. If you go back to, I think it's Asa's father, Abijah. I think it was one generation before there was a previous conflict between Judah and Israel, and Judah had actually come up against Israel, and they were, gonna, they were having a standoff, and Judah, the king had rebuked the people of Israel and said, you need to understand the Lord is not with you. We are, we are David's seed, and God is going to preserve us, and the Lord is not with you. Well, Israel, in the middle of the time where, where the king was giving this speech, Israel, army was in front, and they sneaked around the back with an ambush, and they were going to squash Judah and wipe these guys out, even though they're, they're related. And in that moment, God intervenes because Abijah, I think it was King Abijah, calls out to the Lord, and God steps in, and Israel is severely defeated. So they're not even, they're not even a contender for at least a generation until now. Now, they flip, now they, you see Israel, rise, its head rises again, and this is what's happening to Asa. So Israel, I think it's on the border between Israel and Judah, Israel puts, a, they start building a city of Ramah because they want to prevent anyone from getting down to Asa. Whether it was trade, maybe it was all the defectors from Israel. I don't know why they're building this, but they're building kind of an outpost there. And this is causing a problem. So what does Asa do? Remember, he's the man who defeated a million-man army by crying out to the Lord. What does he do? Then Asa brought out silver and gold out of the treasures of the house of the Lord and of the king's house, and sent to Benadad, king of Syria, that dwelt at Damascus, saying, There is a league between me and thee, as there was between my father and thy father. Behold, I have sent thee silver and gold. Go, break thy league with Baasha, king of Israel, that he may depart from me. And Benadad hearkened unto king Asa, and sent the captains of his armies against the cities of Israel. And they smote Ijon, and Dan, and Abel-Maim, and all the store cities of Naphtali. And it came to pass when Baasha heard it that he left off building of Ramah and let his work cease. So basically, it worked. The Syrian king comes, he starts fighting Israel, they back off. Well, then Asa moves in and takes all the spoil, all the building supplies that were there. He hauls that all into Judah and they start using it to build their own cities. Well, you could say end of story, except God wasn't very happy about this. Verse 7, at that time, Hanani the seer, or he was a prophet, came to Asa, king of Judah, and said unto him, Because thou hast relied on the king of Syria and not relied on the Lord thy God, therefore is the host of the king of Syria escaped out of thine hand. 
We're not the Ethiopians. You remember the million-man army? We're not the Ethiopians and the Lubums, a huge host with very many chariots and horsemen. Yet because thou didst rely on the Lord, he delivered them into thine hand. And then here's a verse that all of you know. You at least know the first half of it. For the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to show himself strong in the behalf of them whose heart is perfect towards him. Herein thou hast done foolishly. Therefore, from henceforth, thou shalt have wars. Asa's kingdom was largely marked by peace. And I just in the last week was, was hearing uh, some history on the effect of wars. And even in the United States, going back to the Cold War and into World War II, whenever there's been major world conflicts, the economic activity in, in those nations skyrockets because it takes so much to fight a war. There's so much manufacturing. There's so much money being spent. Well, it makes me wonder, did Asa's treasure pile up because of the lack of wars? I don't know, but I'm, I'm assuming that Asa had a pretty big storehouse of treasure in all this time of peace. And for him at this stage in his life, when all of a sudden he has another adversary, something has changed in the heart of Asa. Instead of calling out to the Lord and saying, Lord, we've got a problem here again. I know it's been years, but we've got a problem. Asa goes into his storehouse, or we could say he pulls out the checkbook and says, see, who could I pay off here to fix my problem? And he goes over to one of God's enemies, the Syrians, and he pays them off, and the plan seems to work. Remember earlier in the passage, it said that Asa's heart was perfect to the Lord all his days. Well, here it says, the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to show himself strong in the behalf of them whose heart is perfect or loyal to him. Clearly, God did not see this action as part of that. There's only, there's maybe one time in Asa's life where he blew it, and he blew it in a big way. What was the effects of Asa going away from a reliance on God and instead relying on his own resources. The effects of that was conflict with God's enemies. God had intended that he could conquer the Syrians, according to this passage here. But instead, now there was a, there was a residual conflict. This, this, the enemies of God were not defeated, and they were going to be a thorn in Asa's side. And I thought about this. What, what lessons can we learn from this today? Is there something about as we live our lives, as we get older, you know, we get a little bit more established with our finances, um, things go a little bit more smoothly than when we first start out in life. Is there a chance that we start to depend more on what we've accomplished, where we're at in life, our financial status, than, than trusting in the Lord? Just something for us to think about. Another character. Go over to chapter 29, 2 Chronicles chapter 29. Asa's problem was he, he lost his reliance on God. He began to trust in his own resources. By the way, one thing I did not mention, and I thought I should mention it yet. One other thing that happened with Asa, Asa did not like being confronted. He, he was a perfect man up to this point, or he had a loyal heart to God. But when the prophet comes... It ticks him off. He was rebuked, and it says that he put him in a prison house. And not only did he put him in a prison house, but it says Asa oppressed some of the people at the same time. What does that tell you about a, the heart of a man who has it's shifted away from dependence on God, and when he's called out for it, he reacts. He, uh, he goes after the messenger, which was the prophet, and then he, his attitude even towards his own people had changed. Remember how the people flocked him when he was leading them to the Lord? But now something changed in his heart, and he actually becomes an oppressor to these people. I thought that was interesting. And then in the last part of his life, it says he got a disease in his feet. And in his disease, you would think, okay, this is up, up till death. I better call out to the Lord. Well, he didn't. It says, yet in his disease, he sought not to the Lord, but to the physicians. He called the doctors instead of asking the Lord. And that's how the end of Asa's life comes. It's a bit of a sad ending, a life marked by faithfulness. And at the end, there's a turning away from dependence on God to he's going to work this out on his own. In fact, he didn't even go to the Lord for his own health at the end of his life. The next one in 2 Chronicles chapter 29, 
is King Hezekiah, also a king of Judah. The first two we're looking at this morning were kings. Both of them were kings of Judah. Chapter 29, let's start in verse 1. 2 Chronicles chapter 29, verses 1 through 11 says, Hezekiah began to reign when he was 5 and 20 years old. And he reigned 9 and 20 years in Jerusalem. And his mother's name was Abijah, the daughter of Zechariah. And he did that which was right in the sight of the Lord, according to all that David his father had done. He, in the first year of his reign, in the first month, opened the doors of the house of the Lord and repaired them. And he brought in the priests and the Levites and gathered them together into the east street. And he said unto, and said unto them, Hear me, ye Levites, sanctify, sanctify now yourselves and sanctify the house of the Lord God of your fathers and carry forth the filthiness out of the holy place. For our fathers have trespassed and done that which was evil in the eyes of the Lord our God and have forsaken him and have turned away their faces from the habitation of the Lord and turned their backs. Also they have shut up the doors of the porch and put out the lamps and have not burnt incense nor offered burnt offerings in the holy place unto the God of Israel. Wherefore the wrath of the Lord was upon Judah and Jerusalem and he hath delivered them to trouble, to astonishment and to hissing as ye see with your eyes. For lo, our fathers have fallen by the sword, and our sons and our daughters and our wives are in captivity for this. Now it is in mine heart to make a covenant with the Lord God of Israel, that his fierce wrath may turn away from us. My sons, be not now negligent, for the Lord hath chosen you to stand before him, to serve him, and that you should minister unto him and burn incense. Now we're not going to read the rest of his story because it's very lengthy. 25-year-old Hezekiah comes into the kingdom, and there's... It's been bad before him. It's not been going so well. And his heart is, is bent to the Lord. He wants to do what his, uh, David, his father, had done and bring, bring worship back in, clean up the temple. Uh, so, so Hezekiah kind of goes on a campaign to get things to, to purify the temple. Uh, he reinstitutes the Passover, which had been dropped for, a, for quite a while. And ultimately, he establishes the worship of God in the land. Now, that's a 25-year-old man who has a vision to follow after the Lord. In, uh, you don't have to turn here. In 2 Chronicles 31.20, this describes some of the other actions in his kingdom. It says, And thus did Hezekiah throughout all Judah, and wrought that which was good and right and truth before the Lord his God. And in every work that he began in the service of the house of God, and in the law, and in the commandments to seek his God, he did it with all his heart, and he prospered. So clearly Hezekiah, he was all in. He said he did it with all his heart, and as a result, God was blessing him. God was prospering his efforts. Well, now Hezekiah also has uh, some difficulties in his kingdom as well. At some point in his kingdom, King Sennacherib, was, which was an Assyrian, he came out to attack Jerusalem. And Hezekiah made the defenses ready, and they're going to they're gonna face off with, with the king of Assyria. And the people trusted Hezekiah through all this. It says, um, I'm going to read um, in chapter 32. We're going to move on a couple chapters here. I think I'll skip some of the descriptions there. Uh, it's down towards about verse... So after all this setting up, in verse 7 of chapter 32, this was Hezekiah's words to his people. He says, Be strong and courageous. Be not afraid nor dismayed for the king of Assyria, for the king of Assyria, nor for all the multitude that is with him. For there be more with us than with him. With him is an arm of flesh, but with us is the Lord our God to help us and to fight our battles. And the people rested themselves upon the words of Hezekiah, king of Judah. I love that. The people rested. I'm sure it looked very intimidating to see the Assyrians. The Assyrians were very brutal people. Remember, uh, I think it was uh, Jonah was supposed to go to Nineveh, which that was the Assyrians. And, and preach to them. And he, just, he didn't want to preach to these, these uh, barbarians because they were very brutal people. And so you imagine the, the psychological effects of seeing these people coming against them. That would have struck terror in the hearts of almost anybody. But it says the people, they rested because they had confidence in what Hezekiah was, was saying. And his confidence was clearly in the Lord. He's directing them to trust the Lord. Because he says, with them is the arm of flesh, but we have the Lord. I love it. It's such a simple faith. It's such a simple trust. But that's how he begins, or that's where he's at in his kingdom. Now, towards the end of his life, Hezekiah is marked by faithfulness. 
He's marked by bringing the people back into worship, establishing the Passover. He has a passion for getting the people back to God. But then you get later on in his life, and you know the story how Hezekiah becomes, he becomes ill. And his illness is, is unto death. If you go down to verse 24 here in chapter 32, it says, In those days Hezekiah was sick to the death, and he prayed unto the Lord, and he spake unto him, and he gave him a sign. Now, if you look in, in the parallel passage in 2 Kings, it gives a lot more of the details, but I, I don't want to go there because this, I think Chronicles kind of just gives you the high points, the overview. So he asks, he comes to the Lord, he's like, he, he's going to die. And the Lord actually has mercy on him and says, okay, I'm going to give you a sign. I think this is when the, the dial turned back, or at least was, was held in position for a period of time, a sign that God was going was to heal him. And so God gave him healing, actually fully restored him. And if you know history, 15 years were added to Hezekiah's life. Now you could say, wow, it, that's, that's a great thing. 15 more years of such a great kingdom. But in Chronicles here it says, 25, but Hezekiah rendered not again according to the benefit done unto him. Or in, in the NIV it says, Hezekiah's heart was proud and he did not respond to the kindness shown him. God does him this favor, gives him life, but Hezekiah doesn't respond in kind. And it says that there's pride that rises up in his heart. Now, what would Hezekiah have to be so proud about? Let's keep going here and see what it is. The end of that verse says, Therefore there was wrath upon him and upon Judah and Jerusalem. Notwithstanding, Hezekiah humbled himself for the pride of his heart, both he and the inhabitants of Jerusalem so that the wrath of the Lord came not upon them in the days of Hezekiah. Now that's actually talking about, that should almost be at the end of the chapter because it, it just drops that in there. So the pride was not simply Hezekiah's, but it was also the people of Judah. Somehow, in, even in all their cleansing and in, in their return to God, I wonder if there was a bit of a rising of a national pride. You know what? We really are something here again. We are God's people. And we're proud of our leader. And this is great. And it says they were lifted up in pride. And here's one of the reasons. Verse 27. Hezekiah had, mu had exceeding much riches and honor, and he made himself treasuries for silver and for gold and for precious stones and for spices and for shields and for all manner of pleasant jewels, storehouses also for the increase of corn and wine and oil, and stalls for all manner of beasts and coats for flocks. Moreover, he provided him cities and possessions of flocks and herds in abundance, for God had given him substance very much." Now, notice that everything he got was from God. I don't think Hezekiah stole anything. God had blessed him. God had given him all these tremendous resources. But somewhere with that came this feeling of, we have, we've got something going here. Look at our kingdom. Hezekiah's thinking, look at what I have. And the people kind of got in on that, that pride as well. Drop down in verse 31. It says, Howbeit, in the business of the ambassadors of the princes of Babylon, who sent unto him to inquire of the wonder that was done in the land, God left him. Why did God leave him? To try him, that he might know all that was in his heart. You picture what's going on here. These ambassadors come from Babylon because they wanted to see what all the buzz was about. They wanted to see why, what's going on in Judah. We hear all about how great Judah is. We want to see what's going on. And it says, as they came, God stepped back just to see what Hezekiah would do. Now, why would God do that in this stage of life? God didn't step back earlier when there was enemies to fight. But now that Hezekiah has everything, isn't that, isn't that where for most people, including myself, isn't that, isn't that the human thing is when, when we have what we need, and we, we really have the resources and the ability to, to just deal with our problems, God, in a sense, sometimes maybe has to step back and say, what are you going to do with this? And it says, God, he moved back, and he asked, or he didn't tell him, but just to try him, to test him. And Hezekiah, what are you going to do? I wonder what would have been the right thing to do for Hezekiah. He took him on a field trip, but should the field trip have been to the temple maybe? and said to the ambassadors, you know, the secret to our success in this kingdom is the fact that we turned to the Lord way back at the beginning of my kingdom. You know, I, have, I can't glory in anything, but look at all this. 
kind of like Solomon did way back in the day. Remember how Solomon had all these things and people were coming? And Solomon, he didn't boast necessarily. He, he spoke, he gave wisdom. And he, he magnified the Lord in that. We know Solomon didn't turn out the best either. But here, could Hezekiah have said, look at what the Lord has done. But instead, come on in here, guys. I want to show you something. And it says he starts to open the storehouses and the treasure houses. Check this out, guys. Look at what we have here. And he takes them through and he shows them all these amazing things that they have. Now, this part of the story doesn't really give us the details. If you look in Kings, it does. Because the prophet asked him, what all did you show them? And Hezekiah said, I showed them everything. I showed them everything I have, all my treasures. I don't know if he showed them the temple or not, but he showed them his treasures. What happened as a result of that? Remember I told you this occurred in that, in that grace period of 15 years. Well, something else happened in that 15 years. Hezekiah had a son. And when Hezekiah dies, his son Manasseh becomes king. And Manasseh led the people into more wickedness. It says he led them into more wickedness than even the people that they drove out way back, the Canaanites. That's where Manasseh went with it. Where did Manasseh get his values from? Now, of all the kings of Judah, Manasseh actually does end well. It's amazing. He probably did the most damage of all, but he did repent in his later days. Hezekiah, a great king, man after God's own heart, you could say. But in the end, his treasure, his wealth, and what he had kind of got the best of him. His pride rose up. And ultimately, the prophet had said that you're going to lose all this. Hezekiah was relieved because he's like, well, at least it's not in my generation, because Hezekiah did repent. He's like, well, at least it doesn't happen while I'm here, and yet it did happen. Uh, eventually, all those treasures were, were taken out, the people were taken into captivity, and that was all lost. Plus, the dynasty of David through Manasseh for the next many years was a sad tale of idolatry and of tremendous wickedness. In fact, Manasseh even, it says he, his sons, he, they passed through the fire, child sacrifice. Horrible things happened. Does any of that come back to Hezekiah? What about the last days of our life? Where is our heart turning as we come to the end of our days or as we're in midlife looking at the next half of our lives? And then the last one I want to look at here is the man we call Caleb. We know as Caleb. I'm not going to read the story because of time. You know the story. It's very familiar. Numbers chapter 13 and 14, it describes... Moses, they're just about ready to go into Canaan. He, gets, he, he picks 12 leaders in Israel. These were not random selections. These were 12 influential men. He said, I want you to go to spy out the land. And I don't have the whole list, but he told them specific things to look for. How strong are the cities? How fertile and productive is the land? What kind of people are there? Are they strong? Are they weak? And there was this whole checklist of things they were to look for. And so they go into the land, Caleb, Joshua, and, and the other ten whose names we hardly know. They all went into the land. And what's interesting is when they come back, all 12 of those spies agreed on one thing. It is a productive land. They brought back the grapes on a staff between them. And clearly, there's no doubt between the 12 of them that this is a tremendous land. It's a beautiful land, very prosperous, has a lot of good potential. Well, where does the story go from there? They all said, sure, this is a land that flows with milk and honey. But there are giants in the land. And the cities are walled. In fact, there's a lot of people there. So the point of, of the report of these 12 is that 10 of the spies, they saw danger. Two of the spies saw opportunity. It's a difference in faith. Ten of them said, sure it's, you know, sure, it's there, but it's impossible. And two of them said, yes, we can do this. God wants us to do this. I'm sure this is the way forward. The majority of the spies measured the, the giants against themselves, but Caleb and Joshua measured the giants against God. Remember like Hezekiah, the arm of the flesh versus if the Lord's on your side? Asa, we cry out to the Lord. It's, just, it's never a question of the outcome. And you have two men here that say, 
we're seeing the same thing you guys are. You could, if I put it in my own words, we, we see the giants too, but we've got the Lord on our side. Let's go. And it says in that passage that Joshua's quiet, but Caleb speaks up, and the people are getting riled up, and it says he got him quiet before Moses. And Caleb says, let's go. Let's go into this land because this is what God wants us to do. He was a man of vision. He's a man of faith, courage. He's 40 years old, according to the scriptures. A 40-year-old man is saying, let's do it. Let's go. Well, the people didn't like the report. In fact, this got them so stirred up that the more Joshua and Caleb encouraged them, the people decided to stone them. They were so upset at that, them creating this, this, uh, this feeling. Well, obviously, God intervened, and God had had enough. And God tells Moses, ten times these people have rebelled against me. I've had enough. All of these people are going to die in the wilderness except for these two men. Now, if everybody had followed Caleb's example, they could have waltzed into Canaan. They could have conquered. They could have got established. The kingdom could have been, or the, the land could have been tamed, all that. But instead, they have to have a, take a detour of a 40-year lapse. How discouraging would it be to be Caleb when you had the faith that God could do this, you knew God's on your side, and everyone else talked you down. Everyone else stood against you. And now you're going to have to suffer for the next 40 years because of the, the rebellion, because of the lack of faith. I try, I try to think of what this felt like for Caleb. Wouldn't you want to just abandon ship and say, forget these people. <laughs> I'll just go my own way. I'm going to go somewhere where I can find a group of people that think like me and that have faith. And I'm sure this was so discouraging. But one thing that happened is before, before this judgment gets pronounced, Moses basically looks at Caleb and says, Caleb, the land that you walked on in there, you're going to have, it's going to be yours. And it's because you followed the Lord, you were faithful. So even in that, that discouraging time, there is a promise given to Caleb to hang on to during that time. Then we jump over into Joshua chapter, uh, in Joshua chapter 14. This is 40 years, actually it's about 45 years later. Caleb had been 40 years old, now he's 85. Sounds a little bit like Moses. Remember, Moses was also on the backside of a desert for 40 years. Caleb's prime years, I like to call them prime because I'm in my 40s, but 40 to 85, there is a lot of years there where Caleb could have been an amazing man in this new realm. I mean, Caleb could have been a leader that helped conquer the land. They could have had a way forward, but instead he gets put on the back burner for 45 years. How can you be faithful to God when you've had a vision for something and it gets put on the back burner? How do you keep trusting God when, when there's no movement in your life or you feel like, I don't know what, what's going on here? And it's not just Caleb, it's Moses who sits there for 40 years waiting. It's David who gets anointed but waits almost 20 years until the kingdom is his. It's Joseph who languishes in Egypt and in a dungeon until God finally says, okay, now it's the time. And so many times I think we get, we, get, we get discouraged quickly when life is not on a progression that we like to see or that we don't feel this sense of moving forward. And it's even worse in Caleb's condition when it's caused by other people. This was no lack of faith on Caleb. This was on everyone else around him. What do you do when you trusted the promises of God but the people around you didn't? Well, Joshua 14 the inheritance is, is starting to get passed out to the different tribes. So there had already been the 40 years of being in the wilderness, and then there, there's an additional five years. So I'm assuming that five years, it was just a process to get the people dispersed into the land and, and to get this all done. I'm not sure how this is all. I didn't go deep into that. But it's, it's 40, it has been 45 years. But in all those years, he's been resting on a promise and trusting that God wouldn't forget it. So chapter 14, verse 6. Then the children of Judah came unto Joshua and Gilgal, and Caleb, the son of Jephunneh the Kenizzite, said unto him, he's reminding Joshua of something. This is a 45-year-old memory that Caleb brings up to Joshua. Thou knowest the thing that the Lord said unto Moses, the man of God, concerning me and thee in Kadesh Barnea. Forty years old was I when Moses, the servant of the Lord, sent me from Kadesh Barnea to espy out the land, and I brought him word again as it was in mine heart. 
Nevertheless, my brethren that went up with me made the heart of the people melt. And here's a key verse, and I want you to catch this last part because you're going to hear it repeated. But he says, but I wholly followed the Lord my God. And Moses swore on that day, saying, Surely the land whereon thy feet have trodden shall be thine inheritance and thy children's forever, because thou hast wholly followed the Lord my God. And now, behold, the Lord hath kept me alive, as he said, these forty and five years, even since the Lord spake this word unto Moses, while the children of Israel wandered in the wilderness. And now, lo, I am this day fourscore and five years old. He says, I am now eighty-five years old, but the Lord has kept me alive. And here's an even better part of the story. And yet I am as strong this day as I was in the day that Moses sent me. As my strength was then, even so is my strength now for war, both to go out and to come in. I wonder, Jonah, are you as strong today as you were when you were 40? Could be. I feel like it, at least in here, right? (laughs) So that's astounding. But in his own mind, and I think physically, I think it's true. He says, I'm as strong as I was 40 years ago. I have been waiting for the chance. I have been here waiting. I haven't forgotten. Well, Joshua hadn't forgotten either. Joshua, that was just as clear in Joshua's mind that that had been the promise 45 years ago. So, what would, what would you ask for if you were Caleb? I stuck it out. The Lord kept me alive 45 years. I'm healthy. I'm strong. Joshua, why don't you put me in charge of the whole host, and, you know, I'll give orders. I have a strategic mind. You know, I'll, I'll just, we'll just kind of do this thing here, and I think I deserve, you know, probably a pretty good paycheck for, for my faithfulness, and I really think this is where I should go in life from here. What would you have said? Well, Caleb says, Now therefore give me this mountain, whereof the Lord spake in that day. For thou heardest in that day how the Anakims were there, and that the cities were great and fenced. If so be, the Lord will be with me, then I shall be able to drive them out as the Lord said. I love his testimony here. He's not boasting of his abilities. He trusted God 45 years ago, and he says, you know what? If God is still with me, then I can go drive them out. Give me the mountain. Sure, it's got, I'm sure the giants are there. And 45 years later, there's probably a whole lot more of them. But the giants are there. Give me this mountain. But it's a simple faith that says, if the Lord is with me, then I know I can do this. I know I can drive him out. It has nothing to do with himself. It's not looking back and saying, well, Joshua, I guess you and I were the two that made it after all these years. We were the one. No, it's still a reliance on God. And this is at 85 years old saying, if the Lord's with me, there's not going to be a problem here. Verse 13, and Joshua blessed him and gave unto Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, Hebron, for an inheritance. And I want you to catch this next verse. Hebron therefore became the inheritance of Caleb, the son of Jephunneh the Kenizzite, unto this day. Why? Because that he wholly followed the Lord God of Israel. That testimony 45 years later is the same. He wholly followed the Lord God of Israel. What would that look like for you and I today at 50 years old, at 60 years old, at 70 years old, at 85 years old, if our testimony could still be he or she wholly followed the Lord to this day. And don't forget that that holy following the Lord for Caleb meant a lot of patience, a lot of waiting, a lot of maybe discouragement because he saw a way forward and no one else did. But his testimony was he wholly followed the Lord God of Israel. And if you go into the next chapter, Caleb took on three giants and he prevailed. Three giants, he drove them out, plus all the people that were with them. An 85-year-old man took a mountain, and it's always harder to conquer a mountain than on, than on the plains. You have the disadvantage, but it doesn't really matter. The point of the story is Caleb wholly trusted the Lord, and in his latter days, his testimony was that he still trusted the Lord. Where are we at today? Are you still wholly trusting the Lord? Maybe Caleb wasn't cursed, as it were, with just a lot of wealth in those years in the desert. I don't know. I'm not sure if that is always a curse or not. But Caleb clearly was not depending on his own resources when he gets, when it's time to move ahead. Asa, Hezekiah, they seem to get comfortable in their latter days. It's just a warning to us, brothers and sisters, that we don't really start relying on ourselves. We have the ability sometimes to make life work for us. 
but are we dependent on the Lord, especially as we grow into our later years? Three themes we can take from the life of Caleb. God honors obedience. It called the people, the other ten spies, God called them rebels. And the people who who chose, it wasn't just a matter of not having faith. They were rebellious because they were refusing to do what God had said. God specifically said the curse to go into into, um, the wilderness for 40 years was because there was ten times of disobedience. Caleb was not disobedient. Joshua was not disobedient. God honored that. God honors your obedience, even when it's just exercised in simple faith. Is that the theme of your life to this point? And is that going to be the theme of your life from now? You will obey God. The second theme from the life of Caleb, God honors faithfulness. I've already described that. What's a faithful life, even when God doesn't seem to be moving? What does that faithful life look like? Because God honored that. And when the time came, Caleb was ready to move forward. And the last theme from his life is that God is faithful to those who wholeheartedly follow him. It says he wholly followed the Lord, and in turn, God, God didn't forget about Caleb. And in the end, God was able to use him in a mighty way. I would like to sing a song as we close the message here this morning. It's one that you probably all know very well. The song, Give Me This Mountain. And I want you to think about your own life. How many, t- how many times do we ask God for challenges? Caleb asked for a challenge. Give me this mountain. Give me something that's going to take faith to overcome. I'm not picking, I'm not asking for an easy path. I'm asking for a mountain. And as you think about the rest of your life, whether you're retired already, whether you're at midlife or somewhere in between, are you willing to ask God for something different than just a coasting life, an easy life, or retiring in ease and prosperity? What fresh call does God have for you today? Sometimes we feel like, oh, I don't know what my calling is anymore. You know, I did all that in my prime. I was a busy man or I was a busy woman. I've been doing all this and now I don't know where I'm at. Can God still give us a fresh call? I think he did it at 85 years old for Caleb. I think he can do it for us as well. Let's give God our energy in the sunset years of our life. At home I have a plaque. Uh, my children and my wife gave me, I think it was for Father's Day one time, and it's, it's a picture, it's, it's an it's not just a picture, it's a, a sculpture of a man on his knees on a chair and his Bible is beside him on the ground and he's praying before the Lord. He's, he's crying out to the Lord. And on that, underneath it says this verse, verse 29, uh, Jeremiah 29, 13. I would encourage you to make this a theme of your life as you, as you seek, God, where do you want me going from here in my life? This is what Jeremiah 29, 13 says. And you will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. All your heart. Wholly committed to the Lord, like a man like Caleb. You all know this song? Everybody kind of know this? This comes out of this red book from way back. Some of you from the UCS days know this. Uh, there are a couple verses here. I think we'll go ahead and let's just sing this together. And think about the words and think about what God may be calling you to. Shall we sing? Mm-hmm. The challenge now is here, what causes there to fear? I will follow to the place where God has called. And though the task ahead is great, there is no need to wait. God's command is conversations and Give me this mountain, give me this mountain.
Father, I don't know what that song means to each of us individually. Lord, we know enough from Scripture, and there's many examples we could look at, that too many times your people became comfortable or became satisfied with their own resources and their own abilities and made compromises in their lives at the end that, that left just a trail of, of maybe grief or of problems and of conflict. And Father, this morning, I pray for each of us that are in a maybe an older stage in life. And as we think about how do we end our lives well, how can we be like a Caleb? Lord, I pray that you would give a fresh vision. Maybe it's a fresh call to those who struggle to know what their purpose is in life at this time. Lord, I pray that our testimony would be like Caleb, that we were wholly committed to the Lord. And I pray also, Father, especially in my own heart, I pray for a patience when things don't move at a speed we'd like. Lord, sometimes we don't clearly see what you're doing in our lives and maybe even where we're supposed to be at. But I pray, Father, that you would give us the patience and endurance and help us to remember from the scriptures and, and the, the men and women of old that many of them waited long to see your promises fulfilled in their lives. So I ask you, Lord, to just fill us with your vision Help us to pray. Give me this mountain. And Lord, help us to have the faith of Caleb to, uh, to courageously step forward into whatever you've called us to. In the worthy name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.